Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. It's like this moment of like exhilaration and it's terrifying and wonderful. It's like being at the very top of a hill when you're about to toboggan down. Which always makes me laugh when people warn about, oh, you got to watch out for the slippery slope. And I'm like, have you ever done this? It's awesome. John, I want you to start the intro on this one because you've got an extra special radio voice today. (laughs) I do. I do. Welcome to the Deconstructionist Podcast. I'm your host, John Williamson. And I am Adam Narlock. And I have a cold. (laughs) (laughs) You sound like you've got a little Tom Waits influence going on here, which I like. You know, it's like a good balance between gravelly and and about two octaves lower than it usually is. So I had a friend in high school that was a talented musician, and uh, we were all raised in the church. And I found out, like, he smelled like cigarettes all the time. And like, his dad was a pastor. And I was like, Dude, are you smoking? Like, can you do that? Like, I mean, of course, we all smoke a little bit here and there, sneak cigarettes, whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, be be rebellious. But he's like, yeah, man, I want I want my voice to get gravelier. <laughs> it's like, oh, <laughs> I've, had, I've had some musician friends who will remain nameless who who also tried that same experiment. Yeah, it's like a thing. Like, I need to get a good Kurt Cobain voice, and so I'm going to start smoking. It's like not a, all right, kids. Not a good reason to ever start a bad deadly habit yeah seriously you sound you sound great john yeah thank you man thank you (laughs) i'm waiting for my voice to go back back up to where where it normally is but we got a little outside of your voice we got a little something extra special today we do um for those of you who have been waiting for um some some powerful female voices um we have who i'm pretty sure might be one of my new favorite people on the planet good grief sarah Bessie. Sarah freaking Bessie. So those of you that don't know who she is, she is a Canadian uh, blogger, author, speaker, pastor, extraordinaire, and um, recovering know-it-all. I love that she says that. I love that. She claims that as like a title. Yeah. She's like, I am an author, speaker, blah, 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 and recovering know-it-all. It's like, (laughs) that's awesome. (laughs) We're all about self-defamation. Oh, it's fantastic. That kind of self-awareness is just priceless. But she, oh man, like... (laughs) I'm still kind of reeling from that interview. I think she's just got such a warm personality and is so easy to talk to and mm. so fun and, and lighthearted. Um, and she's written two just brilliant books. Uh, first one is called Jesus Feminist. Uh, and the second one, the most recent one is called Out of Sorts, which basically um, is just speaking our language. It's so good. Yeah. You guys really need to pick up these books. I mean, all you got to do is get on Amazon and check them out and just, you know, they always let you preview the first few pages, first couple chapters, whatever. You're going to fall in love with this lady and, and how she writes and what she says and the way it's the, it's an, it's less about what she says, even though her content is rich. Yeah. It's how she communicates it. 
that is the X factor that you just feel like you're in good hands. You're like, I remember the first time I picked up Blue Like Jazz and this sort of narrative theology that she she writes in the same vein of like an Anne Lamott, yeah. you know, Donald Miller. There's story, but you're getting content. Yeah. And oh my gosh, she fits in and, and probably in my opinion, makes it to the top of that heap. Yeah, oh, without a doubt. she's She's got this very poetic quality to her writing. Oh. Um, that just she has a way of and and if you look through her website if you you know I encourage you uh, to go to her blog um, she still keeps keeps it going she mentions that in the interview that a lot of folks who started out um, as bloggers have in kind of transitioned into uh, to writing books have kind of left that by the wayside because mm. let's be honest folks it's it's free yeah you don't make any money blogging for the most part yeah and so she's she's continued to do this because she feels that there's value and importance in that yeah. And, I mean, most of them aren't super long, but she has no. this way of just just dropping a ton of information on you, um, it, writing something truly profound and moving in a, a very short space. Yep, and uh, just yeah, go there. Good grief, man! This is this is really good juice, and you know why I love this. And we're just gonna roll tape here. No, no, no point in them listening to us before we get her on the on the line here. But one of the great things that she brought, which we couldn't have planned on is speaking to those people who are still spinning, still feeling very dizzy and confused and don't know which end is up because they're in this season of deconstructive darkness, this season of doubt, struggling, wrestling. Yeah. Listen up. You've got a, a guide, a kind guide that is about to take you by the hand, lead you to some new landscapes, let you peer out over the edge, off into the horizon, and she's just going to tell you that it's going to be okay. And she does it in just an absolutely beautiful way. Yeah. And, and, and I think a lot of you will identify with her backstory. I mean, she, you know, born and raised kind of like, uh, on the fundamentalist side, mm -hmm. uh, a little more conservative, um, charismatic, you know, charismatic, like yeah. kind of Pentecostal, which is like, Whoa, we haven't had anybody on like that yet. Yeah, we haven't, have we? No. Huh. Which is crazy. Cause that's kind of like my sort of tradition a little bit. Yeah. And so she she you know grows up, marries a, a guy who is going into the seminary and and is going to become a pastor, and then she hits this this season of doubt, and so she has this unique perspective where she can really talk about like she talks about in the interview, um, you know, going from one end to the other mm. end of the spectrum, yeah, coming kind of full circle into this new life, very much, and uh, can even even speaks to what I think is really important because we've heard a lot of this uh, this question from a lot of you guys out there. How do I deal that? with that in the construct of a marriage. Oh, dude. And especially when, when your partner is not in the same place as you are. Oh man, that was, that was, I think my favorite part of this whole interview. We, we got to give it to him. Let's give it to him. Yeah. You ready? Without further ado, guys, Sarah Bessie. Sarah freaking Bessie.
we make the joke oftentimes uh, in regards to our podcast when we get a really good guest on and they say something really, you know, with a lot of gravity to it. And uh, we say, this this thing is free. Yeah. We're giving this away for free. And, I, I, and, and uh, you know, and digging through your blog, I feel kind of the same way. I'm Absolutely. like, wow, like, uh, you know, I have a couple uh, quotes, uh, you know, that you had written. And I'm like, man, like that should, you know, like. You, you you have to sell this. Like, yeah, yeah. What are you doing? <laughs> like, you know. So I know that's the thing that my father keeps telling me. He's like, "Tell me again why you don't make any money really doing what you do." <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, uh, yeah, down kingdom down. That's what this is. <laughs> We're just giving it all. <laughs> absolutely, man. And it feels good to do that too. It really does. It it, totally as, does. as much as possible. Well, it's so much more accessible, I feel. I mean, that's one of the reasons why I'm still so loyal to, even to blogging and um, as a medium. And whenever I have, you know, even now, even though a lot of my peers and contemporaries that I came up with blogging, they have all, um, you know, kind of left the medium or moved on to other mediums. And part of the reason why I'm still loyal is because it's so accessible to people. Absolutely. Yes. I mean, an essay on my blog, I can reach a million people and nobody's yeah. getting that in a book. Right, like yeah. they're not. I mean, I love writing books, and that's like my great passion. But in terms of actually wanting to to reach people, it's hard to beat free stuff on the internet. Yeah, I think there's a, just a humanity to it, also, Sarah. I mean, there's there's as soon as something becomes transactional, it's not inherently evil, but it is less human as soon as it's transactional. I mean, it's, if you can make it free flowing, there is so much more connection there. I think. Well, I feel like that there's even this level of you're not really benefiting from it. And so it takes away this sense of like, what's in it for me? Right. Boom. You know, and uh, and so that's a big part of it as well. I think people find it a little bit more trustworthy or they're not maybe quite as suspicious when they feel like you aren't really standing to gain by, you know, by that. I mean, yeah, you know, I'm sure that there is are some people who do, obviously, if they have, you know, big ad networks and whatever else. But for most of us, I mean, we do it surely because we love it. Absolutely. Because we believe, we, and because we believe in it and we mm. believe it matters. Mm. And so. Well, tell us a little bit about how Sarah Bessie, the blogger, author, activist, speaker, recovering, know-it-all, <laughs> became Sarah Bessie. How did how did that happen? How, how did you how did you kind of get to where you're at? Oh my goodness, that's a that's a really open-ended question. Um, I'm not really sure how, where to begin. Um, you know, well, I I'm a first gen. My parents are first generation believers. Um, and so the context in Canada where I grew up was very, um, yeah, I, I guess you would call it post-Christian, you know, like just, sure. it was kind of like our grandparents and our great grandparents generation that had gone to church. Mm. Um, you know, by the time it was trickled down to my generation, I mean, I didn't, I don't think I really knew anyone who went to church regularly or who even had any passing acquaintance with it. And so, and my parents certainly hadn't or didn't. Um, and so when they, you know, had this this really radical conversion, that they were probably about my age right now, um, and I was about the age of my own tinies, uh, or my older ones anyway, um, you know, it just reset everything in our lives. And in a lot of ways, it was really, um, I, I still feel a lot of tenderness towards that. I, I particularly feel a lot of tenderness towards first-generation believers, mm. because I feel like sometimes we forget what it's like to be new to this mm. and what it's like to be new to this story and what it means when you are on a first name basis with resurrection, right? Wow. When everything, everything has changed and everything's being made new and it all feels like just the best and most beautiful gift you've ever heard in your life. Like there's things that I look back on and I think, you know, yeah, we took things a bit too literary, uh, literally, and we definitely, you know, had an over-realized eschatology at times. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
you know, again, like we didn't know what we didn't know, right? Like we mm. were part of these small communities of all people who didn't know what they didn't know. And like, we had no clue where we were in the church story. And we didn't know about things like denominations. And we didn't know about things like, you know, the structure and form and history of the church. All we knew really was that like, we had been dead and now we were alive and Jesus was real and everything was amazing. Wow. Right. And so, you know, there's things that are drawbacks to that. I mean, first of all, there's lots of people in the church who feel like they have like a really strong tambourine anointing and that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> you know, just really happy, clappy, small churches, like meeting in leisure centers and community centers. And so it's super innocent. Like I remember my parents reading the Bible, just like, absolutely amazed like my, my dad had struggled with some sleeplessness and i remember him coming across that passage in, in the psalms that says the lord gives his beloved sleep and he was like that is amazing i get to sleep because i'm a christian and he's like, ah! like, <laughs> like, <eight hours." laughs> like it worked like it just there's no nothing to say about this that kind of innocence and acceptance and i don't know you can't really parse that sometimes no and so, sure no, you can't no it's really beautiful and so i mean obviously that um, you know, shifted and changed because then that changed our lives. And it meant that I then grew up in, in the church and we kind of began to move further into the, you know, large story. And uh, Michael Spencer, who used to write, um, he's passed away, unfortunately, but he used to write a, um, many years ago, a space called Internet Monk. I don't know if you guys were around in oh, those days or not. No. Oh, he was so cutting edge, just an amazing, almost pastor to those of us who felt really disenfranchised by church. And he coined it and said that we, he coined the phrase churchianity. Oh, that most, yeah. That most of us had kind of given up on Christianity and had embraced this lesser form of a thing called churchianity, where we learned how to behave in church and we learned how to, you know, vote properly and think properly and don't question and don't ask and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And so that was what I think I really burned out on, you know, was really that that sort of stuff. And so, I mean, my husband um, and I met and he uh, is a, you know, we became a pastor and we kind of moved into the American, you know, church uh, thing. And, you know, honestly, by the time we left ministry, we were so burned out and exhausted. Uh. And I just launched straight into a massive faith crisis. It was like all the things that I had questions and had doubts about and wonderings and um, and even a, a tremendous amount of grief and loss and, and, and those sorts of things that it all kind of, you can keep a lid on for a certain amount of time. And then all of a sudden you're in this space where you're like, there is, there is no lid. There is no, there's no lock. <laughs> there's no key. Like you are buried and submerged under all these things that you used to keep kind of nicely hidden from polite society. And so that's when I started blogging. You know? <laughs> That's perfect. Wow. Like, like a lot of people here, I'm going to overshare on the internet because I'm having a life crisis. And so I joined the <laughs> Legion. And of course, back in those days, I mean, most blogging was a super new phenomenon. And particularly women who were writing about theology um, on, on the blogging space. It, it was, I remember feeling like I didn't really fit anywhere um, for a lot of years uh, because I you know, liked to write about my life and my children. And I was, you know, a young mom at the time. And um, there were lots of things I was wrestling with there. And so I didn't really feel like I fit with the theology bros. <laughs> yeah, 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 right. On the other side of it, I mean, I liked, I didn't really, t I was in a season of, of doubt and questioning and pushing back on things and kicking against traditions. And there was no part of me that was tying up anything with a nice little bow at the end. So, you know, the Christian lady bloggers didn't know what to do with me either. 
<laughs> you know, you end up feeling like you fit everywhere and nowhere, but then what you end up finding is that there's lots of us who are in that space who feel like you fit everywhere and nowhere, that you you defy the box, you defy the boundaries, um, that you can be a really, you know, this and that. You know, there's not so much the either or as much anymore. And then the amazing thing about that is you realize you're not alone and crazy. Mm. Right. That's a good oh feeling. That's a good feeling to encounter too. So yeah, it is. So what what are the interesting things that, or, or one of the things that I find fascinating? Um, Adam and I were actually just talking about this earlier. Um, is the idea of going through this crisis of faith uh, within the context of a marriage? And you had mentioned mm-hmm. that you know that your husband was uh, was a pastor, and and I think obviously that brings unique uh, you know issues with that as well, um, as Adam can attest to. You know, being a pastor and. <laughs> And I, think I, our, I think our former church can attest to that. <laughs> oh man, I would love, I would love to hear you talk about that because I know for me when I when I first uh, you know had that that talk with my wife, I can remember to this day standing in the kitchen and just watching her face hit the floor. You know, she's like mm. this, you know, kind of like this is you know she wasn't the one going through uh, a season of doubt, so it was very much. Wait, I didn't sign up for this. Like, you know, you're supposed to have no. all this stuff figured out. So, so t- maybe you could talk about that a little bit with being married to a pastor and going through a, your your season of doubt and what that kind of looked like within the context of your marriage. Well, Brian and I have been married for 15 years now, and uh, recently someone asked me kind of for our marriage advice. And honestly, one of the top things I always tell people is learning how to change together mm. and giving each other giving each other room to change. Wow. Um, I think that that is so key in a marriage. I mean, honestly, if I am a very different woman now than I was when Brian and I got married. And to be honest, he is a very different man. And we have learned to keep pace with each other's, you know, reincarnations over the time, because I think that one of the things we really encountered, um, so yeah, my husband was a pastor, was prepared, you know, and, and, you know, directed and his whole life was moving towards ministry. And I always, you know, was very supportive of that. Uh, and then we found ourselves in ministry and I was just falling apart. I mean, Mm, to be perfectly honest with you, I mean, I just, I felt like I didn't fit. Um, I, you know, and there are things where I look back on it now. I mean, obviously, you know, you look at on the other side 10 or 15 years later and you can see that, you know, places also where you were arrogant, you know, sure. places oh, sure. Where, sure. you know, times when you were, um, you know, lacked humility when I was prideful, um, when I was hard on people, yeah. you know, and sometimes when you're going through your very first, you know, few seasons of critical, um, distance and you're weighing and establishing those things, you are a horrible person. Sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's just, like we can just be honest about it. Right. Yeah. It's like, oh, now, yeah. now I've had the revelation. Real. Now I have been enlightened <laughs> and the rest of you poor bourgeoisie, you know, cattle are not as enlightened as I am, right? And so we, we can be just so prideful and arrogant. And I'm like, just, it, it makes, I look back on it and I'm like, what part of me thought that I was, you know, exempt from the, you know, tri- discipleship just because I thought I was right? Mm, yep. Yep. What That's so good. That I thought that I got a, a pass on um, transforming and, or on uh, exhibiting and embodying the fruit of the Spirit simply because I thought I had a better opinion now. Oh, man, that's good. And so, you know, Brian and I were walking through all of this. I mean, he kept pace with me a lot through all of it. I mean, I was questioning Scripture. I was questioning the church. I was questioning what the purpose of any of it was. And I was, I moved really hard in the direction of... Um, anti-institutionalism like the you know the church as an institution and and what you know I just felt like um sometimes all I could it was all I could do to go 
Um, and at the same time, I mean, my husband and I were going through a lot of um, shifts even within our marriage in that we were having trouble having children. Mm. And we had miscarriages. And we were having these miscarriages mm. in the context of here's the right formula for prayer. Here's the right way you pray. Here's how to get your here, you know, and the whole time nothing was working for us. And so I really think that when I ended up leaving church, um, at the end of the day, it wasn't because of scripture and it wasn't because of what I thought about signs and wonders and miracles. And it wasn't because of the language and it wasn't because of politics. And it wasn't, it was really because I felt like there was no room for my grief. Wow. Oh, wow. I'm not having room to be able to say, I am falling apart mm. and none of this makes sense anymore on a very deep heart level. Yeah. And so, you know, he was very open and okay with that. Uh, when we left ministry, we didn't actually anticipate it being leaving ministry period. When we left ministry at that time and in that context, um, we thought it was more like he went to seminary. Um, we had full intentions of church planting um, but as the years went by, it just became more and more clear that I I could not. And at that point, um, I remember we were supposed to be, you know, church planning with this particular organization, and he he called he called off. Um, I think really for me, because he knew wow. I, I wasn't. He went and got another job. He reset his entire vocational work. Uh, he started off at the bottom of a whole new career. Uh, it was super difficult for both of us because I felt to blame. I felt mm. like it was my fault. Um, wow. And he didn't resent me for it, which I think was just, you know, almost a miracle. I remember him and I talking, because the thing that happened during this time is that I tacked really hard to the left and he tacked hard right in response to sort of some of those things. And so he was like wanting denominations and wanting structure and wanting seminary and wanting all the, you know, the, the um, security of that. And I mean, the most I could manage was like talking about Jesus in the pub. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. The most I could manage for a long time. And so, you know, learning how to, to love each other well, while we were in disagreement, um, learning how to not make it more important than loving each other well, um, seeking to serve one another, putting each other first, giving each other's needs preference. Um, when Brian needed to go to church, I went. And I That's went good. a lot. Wow. Even though I didn't really want to. And when I couldn't stomach the idea of being a pastor's wife anymore, he left ministry. And, you know, sometimes that's hard for people to hear. Um, but at the same time, Brian and I look back on it and we, we honestly think we couldn't have done anything different. We wanted each other. Mm. Yeah. You know, we didn't marry ministry and we didn't marry certain political opinions and we didn't marry certain understandings. And then the beautiful thing about that is, is that now all these years later, we feel like we've swung really close back together again. I mean, I anticipate at some point, Brian and I, I mean, ministry, we have re reimagined ministry. We, you know, understood what it is now. I mean, we, the funny thing is, is that the Lord brought me back to church. Wow. You know, it made yeah. me very, you know, I'm like an official church lady now. Like, I mean, <laughs> I teach Sunday school and I bring people casseroles like just, it's bananas. You know? just, <laughs> so, just like Saturday amazing. Night Live, man, Dana Carvey. Yeah. I totally am. And so, you know, just life is long, I feel. And sometimes giving each other some room and removing even the urgency um, has been really important for us and learning how to navigate that. I mean, there's still places where Brian and I are in disagreement, you know, theologically. Sure. But we've gotten to the place now where we just so completely trust the Holy Spirit's work in each other. And we're so aware of the fact that we both have been wrong. 
And oh, so man. it's okay to, to learn from one another and to let each other be wrong and to move together. And so, I mean, I've just, I don't know, you know, it's, it's sometimes more of a dance than a science. That's for sure. Yeah. I think absolutely. I, I love what you just said. I, I think um, we've had a lot of people reach out to us, you know, through, through our podcast who, you know, uh, men and women who are trying to figure out that, that kind of tightrope walk that, mm. that you have to kind of perform, you know, when you're in the, a season of doubt within the constructs of a marriage, you know, yes. especially when the other person isn't in the same place as you are. Yep. So I, I think that was uh, absolutely beautiful and it's going to benefit a lot of people uh, listening. So I wonder if I might, Sarah, just before we get into talking about some of your work here, um, one last little thing I'd love you to say about this. Like John was mentioning, we've had a lot of people write in and some of the people that are listening to this haven't had the experience that you have where the people surrounding them were committing to them and they were open to, you know, kind of walking through and wandering through this and, and, and allowing that to be what it is while still committing. Uh, there's a lot of people that feel this intense stress, pressure, and anxiety from the outside that they, they shouldn't be doubting and they shouldn't be going through this season and they shouldn't be any of that stuff. Do you have any words uh, of comfort, wisdom, uh, advice for, for people that don't find people allowing that to happen? Well, first of all, I mean, I, I deeply understand it because my husband was stood in stark contrast at times okay. to the way that, that a lot of people were with us. Mm. I mean, we, we often received a lot of judgment um, because of the choices that we were making to choose one another um, because they saw me as a liability to him. Wow. Right? And they, everybody wished that I would just get in line, smarten up, you know? <laughs> And said as much to both of us, right, that I was, you know, costing the man of God his ministry and oh, that's all that kind of stuff, right? It's a, it's a big burden. It's a lot of shame to carry. And yeah. to be honest, I, I carried a lot of it. I mean, the problem was is that you hit this point when you cannot be intellectually and spiritually dishonest anymore. Yep. And once you hit that point, no matter how much guilt and shame you feel, you feel like you have to be, at the very least, honest. Man. And... Um, that is a, a tremendously beautiful place between you and the Holy Spirit, but to outside eyes, it can be terrifying because oftentimes to other people, they haven't let themselves get to that point, right? And so sometimes you can be a threat. You're perceived as, as threatening the, the, you know, the community or the uh, church or you're threatening the young people or you're threatening like all these other things. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, uh, I don't even... I, it, you know, it's one of those things where I look back on it now, and so if someone is in that that season, first of all, you find find the the few people who are willing to walk that with you, and and walk with them and stay with them. And sometimes you find them in your real life community, and sometimes you might find them online, or sometimes you might find them, um, you know, in in books or in a lot of different places. But I really don't think that any of us are made for community with five hundred people. And so if you find you know, a nice handful of people, or even even just one or two, you know, to walk with you, that it feels a lot less lonely. Um, and then even on the other side of that, that I think the thing that is good to to hear and understand is that it is such a normal and good part of your spiritual formation, that you are not wrong, mm. that you are not bad, that you are not evil, that you are not, um, you know, that you are rocking a boat that probably needs to be rocked you know, to be perfectly honest. And Absolutely. so, you know, one of the things I learned um, when I was writing my most recent book was uh, I was reading the study by James Fowler that talks about the six stages of spiritual formation. 
And he goes through all of them, like, you know, you kind of have your first and your second. And, um, you know, at that third stage, you're kind of are in this, this time of like, everything's, you know, this kind of like mythic, literal, black and white, you know, if this, then that, anything that's an outside thing is perceived as a threat, you know, and then you progress into, um, you know, your stage four, which is like your angst and struggle and that doubting season. But the nice thing is there's something on the other side of that, mm. right? That that's not where you stall out. You don't stall out usually on your angst and struggle and doubt. You, you know, you push forward into stage five and even, you know, some people into stage six of like this sense of like universalization and, and love and wholeness and, and redemption that's there. But the thing is, is that our churches and communities are actually structured and work best if you stay in stage three. Right. And so when you're the person that's right. moving out of stage three and they're like, wait, this whole thing works. If you <laughs> are black and white and if you think this way and if you don't rock the boat and now you're perceived as a threat, I mean, right. it's hard not to internalize that. But I think it's it's a beautiful thing to realize that you're not alone. It's completely normal. It's completely healthy. And that the spirit may very well be breathing in those those things that are terrifying other people about you. Yeah, absolutely. man, absolutely. So how... So James Fowler's work, and uh, wasn't he influenced uh, quite a bit by Paul Ricoeur? Yes, yeah, and, absolutely. And how did this uh, make its way into your hands and start to influence you in this in this beautiful book? By the way, everybody need we're, we're now talking about your book out of sorts, correct? Yes, yes. And we want everyone to pick up a copy of this because my goodness, uh, number one, just your your pro, it's, I mean, almost prophecy. I, it's beautiful. You're you're a powerful writer that writes with and also a very warm, um, inviting hand. And it's just it's just beautiful. I think everybody should pick up a copy of this book. So tell us a little bit about how you came to write this book. How guys like Fowler and Ricor, who are, you know people probably listening to this, especially if they were raised in the church, are going to be like, "Who the hell are those guys? Why haven't I heard of them? What, what the <laughs> yeah. heck is going on? What, six stages of what? What first naivete, second naivete? What the heck is what what?" <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I know at some point you start to realize like you've you've been here for a lot of years and yet you feel like you know nothing I love that <laughs> right? yeah yeah it's a great feeling I'm addicted to that feeling I know right it is just like this moment of like exhilaration and, and just knowing that you're on the precipice of something that's just going to you know reset or reorient you right it's terrifying and wonderful it's like being at the very top of a hill when you're about to toboggan down yes yeah yes. so it's a good feeling so good I know, which always makes me laugh when people warn about, oh, you got to watch it for the slippery slope. And I'm like, have you ever done this? It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Oh, that's beautiful. <laughs> Rain down that slippery slope and see what you find. <laughs> it's good. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> feel, feel like you're backsliding. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Joyful. I think that's the thing that sometimes people have a hard time with is they think that if you're in a, sometimes in a season of doubt, it's hard and it's difficult and it's disorienting. But at the same time, it's exhilarating to finally give yourself permission to lean into those things, right?
quote that I pulled actually from your book where you say, uh, lean into your questions and your doubts until you find that God is here in the wilderness too. Mm -hmm. Talk about that a little bit because that blew my mind. I love that quote. Well, you know, I actually, um, you know, the, the, the idea for that came to me um, because uh, I'm a, I have four children. Mm. So I have I have a very big laundry pile. I have, <laughs> I have, and zero free time, right? <laughs> I know zero free time, zero free time. Everybody's outside in the yard with right now with my husband, and they keep coming over to peek in the window, like, "Mom, are you done? Are you done? <laughs> Why are you even talking to us right now?" Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and so one of the things that um, that happened, I'm uh, as I was preparing to give birth, and I remember um, I'm a natural birth advocate, and, um, and one of the things that I had encountered. Um, when I was preparing to give birth was this stuff from Dr. William Sears and he talks about how oh, yeah, when you, yeah. in the middle of giving birth that you kind of enter into this cycle. Um, he called it the fear, tension, pain cycle. Yep. Um, wait, right when you're in the middle of labor. And so, you know, you feel afraid and so you get really tense and then that increases your pain. Mm, and yep. the increase of your pain means that you get more afraid and the more afraid you get, the more tense you get and that increases your pain. And so oftentimes you kind of get caught in this um, you know, resistance vortex that just intensifies, you're terrified and you're in pain and it just keeps increasing. And so the thing that he, um, you know, recommended, or he said, it's so counterintuitive to what we think we should do, which is fight against the pain, resist it, medicate it, whatever. Um, but instead the only way to release it and disrupt the, the cycle is to lean into the pain. Oh, and wow. I was like, this is bananas. And then I went in and had, um, you know, I've had four children now. Yeah. Um, and all of them, I mean, I give birth to three month olds. And so my husband's like, <laughs> and they're all like 10 pound babies, nine pound babies. I have huge babies. And I discovered when I was in the midst of labor and delivery, just this tremendous metaphor of being true that the only thing that disrupted the fear was instead of fighting against the pain, was to lean into it to mm. train my body and my mind and my soul to lean into that pain, to work with it. And that that is what freed me from fear, freed me from tension and allowed me to bring forth new life. And so then later on when I was kind of, um, you know, sometimes I feel like I was looking back on this season of, um, of tremendous um, upheaval and, and deconstruction. And I felt like I was moving into a new season of reconstruction. I was moving into this thing of saying, okay, I've torn it all down. I've burnt it all down. I don't know what I think about anything. And the only thing I know is that I'm, I'm ready to rebuild. Mm. I'm ready to say, I'm not just against things anymore, that I want to be for something. And I want to figure out what I'm for. And I want to, and, and really the only thing that made sense to my heart at the time was Jesus. Mm. Um, and so, you know, for me learning how to rebuild on that cornerstone of who is Jesus Christ, what would this look like if I was actually an actual disciple? Like, what would this actually do to my life? <laughs> sure. You know, and so I remember just having this really strong sense of like, you need to lean into the pain that our, this metaphor was so applicable to all of my spiritual formation that it was only when I was fighting against it, when I was trying to medicate it, when I was, and when I say medicate, I don't, I'm not saying anything that is about, um, you know, that's slandering anything to do with mental illness or depression or anything else. I'm not at all talking about, about that at all. I'm talking mm. more about like numbing it. Sure. Right. So sure. maybe the wrong word, numb it. 
So if we want to, you know, numb the pain, we want to pretend the pain's not there, or we want to fight against it, or we want to run away from it, or we want to flee from it, or we, you know, whatever it is. And yet all that does is increase our tension within it, which increases our pain, which increases our fear. And, you know, we just kind of continue to stay in this vortex that feels so unbreakable. And the only way really to set yourself free from that is to lean into that pain, to mm. go chase right to the very center and, and depth of the questions you have, the doubts you have, wow. the pain that you've experienced, the suffering that is unanswered in your life, the injustices in the world, and to really stand before God and say, I need to lean into this. I need to follow this all the way down. And, and I think the thing that I discovered is that that's where the release is. Wow. That that's, that's what disrupts it. That's what breaks it. That's what sets you free. That's what opens you up to this whole vista that now you get to walk out into and say, okay, I have no idea where anything is. It's like I've moved to an entirely new country. Nothing makes sense anymore, but I'm out in the wilderness and it's mm. okay. Man. Wow. Some of the things that you were saying are so wonderful and so um, insightful and, and aha, that aha moment. It's like, oh my gosh, I need to lean into the pain. But it's also so counterintuitive because the way our brains are wired is no, get away from the pain, avoid the pain, circumvent the pain, you know, whatever. But it's counterintuitive to lean into the pain. So do you have any maybe suggestions on how some of the people that are experiencing that can start to do that in their spiritual life, their interior life? You know, there's a lot of different ways where people can do that. And I think one of the things even when I was, I remember when I was writing the book, um, I really did have this sense of, of wanting to write something that was not necessarily prescriptive. Mm. Um, you know, someone who, who wrote, I think, what is it, an excellent book that's very um, uh, practical for that kind of stuff was Kathy Escobar's book, Faith Oh, Shift. yeah, absolutely. Right? I don't know if you guys have read that or not. Just a phen yes. phenomenal book. It, yeah. And it's very practical in yes. terms of like, here's what you can do and here's how to navigate it and here's how to figure out how to deal with people and everything else. And I found that incredibly helpful. And yes. so, but for me, when I was writing this book, uh, for me, a big part of it was that I didn't really want to come back um, to people who felt like they had no answers and they didn't know what they were doing. And then to show up and say, well, here's a nice new tidy set of answers. Mm. Go ahead and take these and everything will be fine. Right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so... You know, I think that part of it was this sense of um, when you are leaning into the pain, it can look really different for, for where you are and for what those issues are, for what those questions are. Mm. Uh, sometimes it can be a process of years. Sometimes it can be an untangling. Sometimes it can be a very quick, um, you know, sort of, of release and, and experience that you kind of have. Uh, sometimes it's talking to people. Sometimes it's reading books that you've never allowed yourself to read. Sometimes mm. it's I feel like one of the first things that happen when you begin to change your mind about stuff is you begin to think that the people you've always disagreed with maybe actually aren't completely nuts after all. Wow. You know? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's almost the first thing is you're like, wait, I've always thought they were completely wrong and didn't, you know, love anything to do with God. And yet all of a sudden they are making absolute sense. So something's gone crazy here. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, I know right. that. I know that feeling. Right? It's just kind of one of those feelings where I remember, um, you know, hearing all these people, you know, hating on uh, liberation theology. Yeah, right? just yeah. These, you know, leftist, liberal, you know, Latin American theologians. And, and then I started reading it and I was like, 
this stuff's amazing. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this is absolutely amazing. Everybody should be reading this stuff. This yeah. is completely, this completely resets. And so then I remember feeling this sense of like, what is the matter with, you know, theology departments in these, you know, big, huge schools that they aren't reading this stuff. Like absolutely. Because it's, you... it's disruptive and it's threatening. and it's, you know, Yeah, it's yeah. not part of the approved message. It's not coming down the, you know, the white theologian mountaintop, you know? Um, Absolutely. There's no man on the mountaintop here. Instead, you're listening to like Latinas or you're listening to like, you know, all these stuff from workers. And, you know, it just was like, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. But I remember having this sense of like, almost like I was doing something wrong the first mm. time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I remember somebody telling me one time they had that same feeling when they started reading Richard Rohr. Because they had been oh, told wow. so long that he was like this mystic and this, you know, new agey, whatever. And of course, I'm charismatic and, and grew up in the charismatic church. So I'm like, I have a really high threshold for woo-woo. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Really high threshold. And so I was like, whatever, I'm all over being a mystic. Like, I think charismatics are our generation's mystics in a yeah, lot of ways. Now. I agree. Yeah. I completely agree. And, and, if, and you, if you ask Rohr himself, he would probably argue that he's more orthodox than most people, you know. That, absolutely. Yeah, so, yeah. Right? It's so funny how, like, that very first time when you kind of, like, just start dipping your toes into, like, these waters that you were always kind of forbidden to you. And then all of a sudden you realize that, like, Jesus is there. The spirit is there. Mm. The truth is, and the, the story of God is so much bigger and wilder and more inclusive and beautiful and weirder and generous than you ever could have imagined. And yeah. look at all these people. Look how big the family is. Yeah, that's beautiful, Sarah. That's, that goes right along with what so many of our guests have said before. And that's a message that we're not planning on bringing out over and over again. It just keeps happening. I remember what Alexander Shia said. He's one of the first people we interviewed. And he said, you know, one of the beautiful things about the Gospels is at the end, they didn't name the mountaintop because this was the evidence of this cosmic Christ that, you know, we don't have to bring the Christ everywhere. We go everywhere and realize the Christ is already there. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that that's a huge shift. I mean, one of the final um, things that my husband and I are, I think probably in all honesty, we're probably still unpacking was even what we call like our evangelical hero complex. Oh, right? yes. Right. This idea that like, it's up to you to save the world and up to you to change the nations and full-time vocational ministry is the top of that hierarchical chain and anything else is just pew fodder. And, oh, yeah. you know, you're just financing the real work of the ministry and you've got to, you know, all this other kind of like bullshit that you it end is. up sort of sitting yeah. with. And it gives you such a complex about things. But then on the other side of that as well, it creates this idea of like us and them. Like yes. the gospel doesn't show up until I show up. Like, mm -hmm. give me a break. Give right? me a break. Yeah, well, yeah. and one of the things, I mean, kind of, because we want to, we would definitely want to talk about your, uh, your, your, your previous book as well, um, and and have some time to discuss that a little bit. But one of the things that I that I really enjoy that uh, that you wrote, you mentioned several times that, you know, while we might be on a journey, uh, not to be afraid, and that your path might lead you elsewhere, uh, but in your case, you said it it brought you full circle, but only with new eyes, a new heart, a new mind, a new life, and a rise smile. And that maybe when we come out of this, maybe instead of attaching ourselves to, you know, evangelical, you know, uh, or a Lutheran church or Methodist or, you know, some sort of label, uh, rather we can be just disciples or pilgrims or followers of Jesus. So, uh, maybe you could talk about that a little bit and then we'll, we'll get into uh, Jesus Feminist. Sure. Well, you know, I think one of the big things for me is I honestly never thought I would end up back in church. Wow. Um, I, I really did believe that I had been set free. <laughs> like, yeah, I thought that I would, you know, never go back to this way of doing things. This, you know, the idea of, um, you know, Sunday morning church and of sermons and Sunday school and, you know, whatever. 
And so when my story corkscrewed back around, not just on that, but even on the type of church, you know, because a big part of my, my journey over those years was learning how big the story of God is and, and being open to learning mm. from different traditions and different uh, people. And, and so I got to this point where I felt like I gathered all of it to myself and was really deeply changed and challenged by, you know, Anglicanism and by ancient practices of the church, but even by, um, you know, like I said earlier, like the global story of uh, God at work in the world. And so it's like, I honestly thought that even if I ever did go back to church, it would look, it would be one of those like cutting edge, you know, super progressive, you know, places. And instead, I'm just like, I'm in a school gym. Yeah. Like, I'm, in, I'm in a school gym with like a, a bunch of folks that I probably would have gone to church with 30 years ago. You know, we wave flags, right? We've got like the whole big thing. And I just love it with my whole heart. And I never would have foreseen that tenderness and that love for it being reborn in my heart again. Um, but I think the, the thing that's really um, interesting to me is I feel like we're seeing a generational distaste with tribalism. Oh my yeah. gosh, yeah. In a lot of ways. And so even though I'm in this church, I don't feel loyal to that thing of like, this is, we've, now we finally got the code cracked. Right. Like, this is the only way to worship. This is the only way to, to preach. This is the only way to experience the gospel. This is the only way to embody community. Like, there's zero part of me that thinks that. Like, this is one expression and I'm happy here, you know, now. Sure. But at the same time, I just can see so much more that so many different expressions of faith and and i can look at the it and bless it and and even long to be a part of it and, and participate in it and i think that's one of the things i've loved most about traveling and preaching and speaking these last few years is it has just given me such a renewed love for the church because everywhere i go all across canada all across the united states into the uk i just keep encountering people who believe it who love Jesus, who love one another, who love their communities and neighborhoods, and they are Methodist and mm. Baptist and nothings and nuns and yeah. post Christians and you know modern Christians and you know all over mega churches and tiny little house churches and you know uh, social justice initiatives and you know depressed and depressed areas and then gentrified suburbs and I have been all over the map in the last few years and all I can say is just how much hope it gives me for the body of Christ because everywhere I go. I feel like you're seeing this. You're seeing this sense of like deep love and thoughtfulness and inclusion and wholeness. And it just gives me so much hope when sometimes the narrative, the dominant narrative is so different than that. Oh, Man, that's that beautiful. Gorgeous. That actually uh, covered my other question. So thank you. Uh, <laughs> I was I, I was just going to ask, you know, how, how do you uh, kind of maintain that label-less-ness, uh yeah. if that's a word, <laughs> you know, yeah. and still kind of plug into a church community and, you know, and I think one of the things that that you pull from in, in some of your work is obviously um, one of our favorite people, Phyllis Tickle. Uh, we're still a little bitter that God took her from us before we got a chance oh, to talk no. to her. Right before we had a chance. Yeah, we didn't start oh. this in time. So, but um, just Such the idea, and I know that you talk about this too, but the the idea of the great rummage sale and how um, I believe that you've said that you even feel that we're kind of in this um, kind of n almost new reformation. Mm -hmm. And we could not agree more. I think there is this large contingency of people out there. Um, you know, you can call them millennials or Generation X, whatever you want to call them, who are hungry for. Um, I think maybe even I don't know, like a third option. You know, not not necessarily. Oh, they're not they're not really interested in this inherited uh, 
idea of faith, this denominationalism, but but rather looking for this almost, like I said, third option. So, may- Well, and I think it's a really beautiful thing. There's a lot of life on the side of those questions. I mean, if somebody hadn't pushed back and started some really serious conversations about colonialism, like missionary mm. work, right, would have profoundly changed. And so, yeah. I mean, there's, there's so much life and goodness on the other side of, of that disruption. And not yes. just for your, you, yourself in your own life. I mean, I think that's the thing that sometimes we forget is like, we feel really disrupted and we feel like, you know, we're discombobulated on, you know, internally or spiritually or in our minds. But at the same time, there's this orientation towards each other, mm. you know, and that there is, there is a life that's waiting on the other side of that. And you know what? I very rarely believe that the Spirit's waiting for you to get your crap together and have all your opinions nicely lined up before you get to participate in God's co-creation <laughs> right. and redemption of the world. Absolutely. You can have all the wrong opinions in the world you want, and you still can be oriented towards people and, and be a person of love and, and be a person who's embodying and, and displaying the fruits of the Spirit or, um, you know, reaching out towards one another in relationship and in community. And I mean, I think that there's so much, uh, you know, that we can upend systemically, you know, as well as what we're upending within our own souls. Man. I just that that this is a free podcast, Sarah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, it is, and we're just having too much fun. <laughs> mm, th- I mean, ah, oh, you should see my face right now. I'm I'm glad you can't because you'd be like, is is he okay? <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Oh, Sarah, that is just I I could ask you twenty more questions all down this line because this is I think what we like talking about most. But I really want people to understand a little bit more about your first book. Um, obviously, being a blogger got you on the map, you had some things go viral, and then you write a book with a very provocative title that's open for a lot of misunderstanding, and I'm pretty sure maybe that's why you chose it. <laughs> maybe, maybe not, but uh, based on the fact that we both have marketing backgrounds, and it's okay. That, 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 that's a good, it's a good thing to stir it up a little bit and make people crack it open and read it. So you wrote a book called Jesus Feminist. Yes. I mean, to, I a, to a lot of people... You know, from the the quote-unquote feminist camp or from the quote-unquote evangelical camp or from the quote-unquote kind of weird middle that, you know, kind of oversects both of those, um, that's a very provocative title. Um, And I just would love to hear you just kind of talk a little bit about why you chose that title, why you chose to write that book, and what people can kind of start to... To, to hear from you within the pages of that book without giving too much away because we want them to, we want them <laughs> right. to buy it because right. it's a great oh. book. Well, that's good news. Um, <laughs> yeah, I think if there was an award for like managing to piss off the most people with one two-word title, <laughs> I, I love that. So, I love that about you. Yeah. yeah. Good. Well you know, done. What's, well what's done. really funny too is like, I don't know if you guys do the Enneagram stuff at all. Have you talked about that? at all yet like Richard Rohr's stuff on yes. like the nine basic types of the ancient practices of like yeah. the nine basic types of humanity. I, I'm a nine. I'm a peacemaker, which means like I abhor conflict with my whole uh. heart. And so of course I wrote a book called Jesus Feminist. It's amazing. <laughs> oh my gosh. I can't figure out if that was like kicking against it or what the thing was. Well, the thing was for me, um, you know, I was wanting to write into this, um, the other side of the debate, really. Like, for me, it was never a book about, you know, an academic book or a book about Christian feminist theory. It was more perhaps, um, you know, kind of, I often call the kind of writing I do narrative theology, Mm. you know, which is like this idea that I'm always writing about what I think and know and believe and even hope about God. And the best way I know how to do that is by telling stories. 
um, and try to kind of finding that narrative within my own life, within, you know, life as I encounter it and, and see it as I uh, move through life. And so, I mean, that way of, of writing about things can sometimes be a bit unorthodox because I feel like sometimes those conversations about, um, you know, women's equality within the church have not really jumped out of the academic world. Right. Like it's it's kind of considered settled in a lot of mainline churches and considered yeah. quite settled in academia. But then, you know, practically and culturally and, and maybe more pop culturally within the church, a lot of the books about marriage kind of continue to teach this, you know, patriarchal style of, you know, headship or sure. You know, they, they don't allow women to like even read scripture in church. And it's just very, you know, damaging and, and broken sort of uh, way of interpreting the Bible. And so you know, for me, I grew up in a home where with parents who were, you know, d- deeply egalitarian. I grew up in churches that, because again, maybe we came of age in more of a post-Christian context, and our churches were super small. Like in Canada, if you have a church that hits Twitter people, we are all like super <laughs> excited for you. You're like, <laughs> you're wow. like what? How'd you, you do that? A church. If you have got a church of two hundred people, it's amazing, right? Like we're yeah, super excited great. for you. And so this whole thing of like you know, disqualifying and benching women from ministry was just not even a part of my vernacular. I didn't even realize that was a thing that people did uh, until I was an adult, because I was super comfortable with having, you know, female pastors. I mean, if we had teachers and leaders and, you know, participating and in the life of the church and in, in, and in life, you know, even um, socially and culturally, you know, with, uh, in, in that way as well. I mean, it just felt, you know, I guess more progressive of a way to, to grow up, but I never really would have identified it that way. And so a big part of me when I wrote the book was to sort of almost show what life was like on the other side. Mm. You know, once you've said yes, once you've, once you've settled this, you know, here's, here's what it means in your life and in your marriage and in your church and in the global story of what God's active in the, in the world. And for me, it was always just less a book about that, uh, you know, that kind of, you know, Christian feminist theory than to say, here's how my feminism intersects with my faith. Wow. Um, and here's, here's what that looks like. Here's how that's changed me here. It was following Jesus that made a feminist out of me, wow. not the other way around. It wasn't what something it, I was trying to shoehorn into my Christianity and sure. make fit. Yeah, it was talk, what birthed it and what created that. How did that, how did that happen? What do you mean by that? How did Jesus make you a feminist? Oh my goodness. You know, that, I think that kind of goes back even to some of the, the renewal that we were talking about earlier when I was saying that you know, I grew tired of, of, of deconstructing. I think that sometimes when you're in that season of deconstruction, you think your two options are to, you know, be intellectually and spiritually dishonest and just stick your fingers in your ears and it's fine, we're fine, everything's fine. Sure. Um, or you think your option is to just burn it all down and walk away entirely. And so learning how to find that third way forward of saying, okay, there's things I need to, I need to burn down. There's things I need to release. It's a beautiful thing to watch a live burn. To yeah. Ash, yeah. Uh, to unshackle yourself from false things to see the freedom there. But then there's also things I want to bring along. There's right. things that are redemptive and beautiful. And sometimes it isn't until later in your life that you begin to realize what a treasure those things actually were to you, that you didn't appreciate them and love them and cherish them the way that you, you do now. And so learning how to walk that third way forward meant for me at the beginning, starting with Jesus, mm. you know, and so like any good Protestant, you start with the Bible, right? <laughs> That's just what we do. Sola Scriptura, baby. Right? Oh my gosh. <laughs> but see, I'm charismatic, right? Uh-huh, and so uh-huh. there's this deep informing of the Holy Spirit to sure. reading scripture yeah. that, comes, that comes into that. And this, um, and of course, I'm charismatic, so everything has to be messy and experiential. Like that's just <laughs> <laughs> Hands up, crying, down on the knees. Yeah. 
pounding must the floor. Be. Must yeah. be emotive. Must be. Yeah. And so I remember having this sense of like, as I was reading the gospels, I, I had this, this thing of, of um, deciding I didn't want to be a Christian anymore. Could not identify with that label anymore. I did not feel like it represented me. I did not want anything to do with people who had that label. Um, and so, you know, and kind of in this, you know, I don't know, it's probably just a trick of language, but at the time it gave my soul some space that it needed. Uh, I said, I was a follower of Jesus. That's what I am. I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm not a Christian. I'm not like these people over here, but I'm a follower of Jesus. And I remember sure. having just this like moment one day of being like, so I should probably figure out what that means. <laughs> <laughs> Right? Like it was just this innocence to it almost. If I was like, I actually don't know a whole lot about Jesus. I've heard a lot about Paul. I've heard a lot about, um, you know, thou shalt and thou shalt not. And, you know, the man on the mountaintop and the bottom of the I, I literally need to know who actually Jesus is. And so that's what reset almost everything in my life. Because, wow. I mean, Brian Sand always says that if you want to know what God is like, you look at Jesus. Jesus is what God has to say. Yeah when we wonder what God is like. And so learning and having that reorientation begin to happen of like, it changed how I read scripture. It changed how I interpreted scripture. It changed how I saw church. It changed how I saw um, my purpose and, and what our, our purpose is here on earth. It changed everything. Because at that point, I remember sitting, I was actually, I think I was in Luke chapter six and I was sitting at our kitchen table. I remember it like it was yesterday. It was probably about 10 years ago. And I remember reading Luke chapter six and like literally slamming my Bible shut and like, being angry and looking up at my husband and saying, I feel completely ripped off because I didn't know anything about this guy and I would follow this guy. Yeah. Yeah. That's awesome, man. This is worth leaving your nets and following him immediately. This is worth being martyred for. This is worth all of it. And now I get it and I feel like I never did and I felt ripped off. And so that was really where it started even with the whole feminism conversation is being able to really understand then who, what, what, why it was different, you know, like that patriarchy is the backdrop of the Bible, not the mandate of the Bible. Oh, that's good right. stuff, Sarah. So just even being able to then understand Paul and, and I had gone from being, you know, almost angry at Paul and feeling like he was a misogynist and, you know, that he hated women and, and all this other stuff to all of a sudden being like, having my heart almost broken for Paul because I was like, I bet that if he knew now how we had so twisted and misinterpreted and misapplied a few lines in a cup in, in his letters, he would have be brokenhearted at the damage it had done to the gospel. Oh, wow. Absolutely. And so being able to write into that space with a lot of freedom um, was really great. Um, honestly, when we wrote, when I wrote the book and when, when Howard published it, I think we all thought it would be more of a niche book. And it ended up going way further than I ever would have expected or planned, um, starting great conversations. And even now, I mean, it's been four or five years now since that book came out, and I still hear from people. Absolutely. It, it just is, it blows my mind, and it makes me just feel so aware of the fact that when the Spirit is at work, like, I literally feel like I just wrote it, and it's like, and now the Spirit's at work, right? And it's yeah. just going where go and does what it needs to do and it takes that little nothing thing that you did and makes something really beautiful and redemptive and good about it oh man well you know you crack space open and then you know the wind starts blowing you know i think the thing too is i felt profoundly aware of the fact that this was not new ground right so there was a huge evangelical feminist movement in the 70s mm. and there and then you know i think that there was almost some complacency that arose after that because they were like great now we've got it handled got it. <laughs> we're done <laughs> 
Right. Really saw like the rise of, of, you know, kind of that really strong patriarchal movement that happened in Christianity in the 80s and 90s, um, and particularly in America. It didn't happen so much here in Canada or in the UK at all. So I think it's a uniquely American thing. And that's the thing that I, I encounter in a lot of places is, um, you know, for a lot of us, we're already on the other side of that. In so many ways, I felt like Jesus Feminist was my love letter to the church saying, come on over here. It's good here. That's oh, so wow. good, Sarah. So I, I think the probably the most important question we have to ask you before we wrap up our time here, and and I understand this is a a deeply sensitive uh, kind of topic. Yeah, um, yeah. This is this is important stuff. Yeah, here. this is this is. I mean, this is going to send a lot of listeners one way or the other. I think. But who is oh. your your favorite doctor from Doctor oh. Who? <laughs> you guys know the way to my heart. <laughs> we did our research. Our, our hearts, <laughs> yeah. hearts, I should say. <laughs> right. Absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> See, I grew so I grew up really on the I, I grew up on the original series, so I, I wasn't aware until I, I think probably in the second season uh that they had revived it and started the second run. So I'm kind of dedicated to the original uh doctors from uh, probably Peter Davison from the early eighties if you Aww. I don't know. So yeah, no, I don't. Yeah, yeah. I was a. Uh, you know, what's funny is I'm actually not a huge sci-fi person. Like I don't yeah. like sci-fi movies at all. I don't like sci-fi. Like I've never liked any of the universes and whatever else. But I have just uh, like so totally and completely fallen down the rabbit hole on Doctor Who. Like it's just it transcends. <laughs> Yeah. I remember writing this one article for Christianity Today that was like about the theology of Doctor Who. It was like this Venn diagram for the two like great geekeries of my life. Like theology oh, wow. of Doctor Who is like there. Yeah. I got to do that. Yeah. <laughs> Boom. So you still, you, you, I feel like you're avoiding the question though. So. I am yeah. 100% avoiding <laughs> You really did a great job at that too, but John's not going to let you off the hook yeah, that easy. Yeah, come on now. Okay. Well, you know what? <laughs> I started watching with the ninth, um, with the ninth okay. Doctor. Okay. Um, and so... A big, you know, I, I love each of them for their own thing. And then I've gone back and I've watched the classic series uh, since then. Oh, good. Not all of it. Um, and I, you know, have the things that I love, you know, in, in that series. But, you know, when I when I really fell in love with Doctor Who was with Dave Tennant. And so I'd probably say that the 10th Doctor is probably the, like the one that first won my heart on the whole thing. But then I look at it and I'm like, I love Matt Smith and I love Peter Capaldi now. Yeah. I was really out, uh, out on Peter Capaldi because I fell so in love with the Eleventh Doctor's incarnation and his energy and his. I don't just. I felt like he brought this. I don't know, very multi-layered performance to it that just unfurled over the whole storyline that kind of came along with it. But Peter Capaldi, it took me a long time to get a hold of it, and then I think when I really thoroughly was like, he might actually be the best Doctor ever. Oh wow. Well, yeah, it was just this last season, the ninth, the ninth season that just uh, that just went by, and so that's the point where I was like, he may not be my most favorite doctor, but he might be like the best doctor we've ever had. <laughs> okay, okay, phenomenal. I would I would argue that it was like one of the best seasons of Doctor Who that we've ever seen. It was just this most recent one. See, I, I have Scottish roots, so he had me pretty much right away, straight away with the Scottish Very accent. Scottish. So, <laughs> I'm like, all right, okay, I, I can go so with this. Good. You know, honestly, I just love all my my um, eldest daughter is nearly ten, and just in the last month, I've started letting her start the series with me, and so it's like every single night she's like, "Mom, can we watch another episode of Doctor Who?" Mom, oh, that's watch? that's so cool. That twist is sweet. My dude. arm, child, twist my arm. Let's oh, do it. Oh man, <laughs> those kids learn how to manipulate so quick, man. Yeah, it's so, it's so it great. They know the way. They know the ways. 
Well, I can I can certainly identify with your uh, with your love of all things British television. I'm I'm uh, I think we've watched them all: The Fall, uh, Broadchurch, Sherlock. Oh, you know, so Broadchurch. Oh my gosh, can we talk about Broadchurch? That Ab- show, absolutely. <laughs> ruined. I've never been watched a show in my life. I've never really like. I just you know, again, you have four children, you have life. Like I don't have. We literally put our lives on hold to finish the Broadchurch. <laughs> oh man, I've my gotten so many people like, on that. Late at night, and we'd be like, "We've got to watch the next one. We've got to." Oh, watch it. it's so good! I love it. It's so good. I'm glad. I'm glad to find another fan. I've I've gotten quite a few people hooked on that series. So, oh my gosh, it's like my go-to. I'm constantly recommending it and getting people addicted to that one because you know the thing is with Doctor Who is that it is it's a difficult series for some people to get. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas Broadchurch, I feel like I always I, I can win with that one. Call the Midwife is my other favorite. I love Call the Midwife with my whole heart. I think Call the Midwife should be required viewing in every seminary program ever. Wow. I think yeah. If I could make one change to seminary programs, I'd make everybody watch Call the Midwife. <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Yeah, there Fuller, we go. <laughs> Northwestern, Dallas. Are you guys listening? Yeah. Sarah Bessie says. It will, it will change everything. <laughs> That's beautiful. Well, Sarah, we love to end with one last little question. You don't have to be long-winded about this. We want to be respectful of your time at home. But uh, one of the things we created this space for was so that people on both ends of this faith spectrum, whether they're more fundamentalists and starting to kind of um, allow themselves to see some new things and, and, you know, start to experience some new perspective for the first time, or whether they're more on that sort of agnostic atheist end, but they're spiritually curious. Um, that's the spectrum we hope to reach and cover. And we love to end every show with just asking the guest, if you could just speak to both sides, uh, what would you say? I think that if I had to distill almost everything I've ever written um, and spoken and said, down to to one thing I would always always and I will probably go to my grave uh saying that we are so you are so incredibly loved Mm. that you do not need to be afraid and that you are so loved Mm. I am so completely convinced of how deeply beloved deeply worthy deeply valuable you are no matter where you fall on any spectrum, no matter where you live, no matter where you're from, no matter what is going on, that nothing that could possibly change about you and nothing that is unchangeable about you will ever move or change the meter of your belovedness in God. Wow. You are loved as you are. I think, I think you can drop the mic now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or drop, drop my little white headphones, one of the two. <laughs> <laughs> Appreciate you using yeah. those. The audio quality has been fantastic. So yeah. thanks for using the white headphones. That, that's, you're a pro. You're a pro. That's, that's awesome. Well, except Sarah Bessie. For, except for the microwave incident. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, except for the microwave incident. But you know what? People listening right now have no idea what you're talking about because that's not actually going to be in here. Oh, you edited it out. Okay, my bad. Yeah, well, we'll <laughs> no, it's, it's great because now they feel like there's something behind the curtain. So there's mystery. There was, there's mystery there's now. There's always something behind the curtain. <laughs> if, there's, if there's one thing I think your, your show does, it encourages people to look behind the curtain. <laughs> oh, thank exactly. you, Sarah. Thank you very much for that. Thank you. So, uh, uh, is there anything currently that you're working on now that that uh, we could direct fans or listeners to? And uh, you know, what's the best place for for folks to go to to keep up to date on on what you're up to? Uh, well, probably my website. You know, just sarahbessie.com. Um, it has my blog. It has links to my books, my speaking schedule, which is um, you know ongoing for the next you know year or so, and. 
um, yeah, I'm starting to begin to work on a third book, but not really at a place where, you know, I'm at that point right now where we're working on it, where if like dare speak a word about it, you'll lose the whole thing. Oh yeah. And okay. So, <laughs> but it should be out uh, in fall of 2017. So we'll awesome. see if as long as I can wrestle it. A teaser, a teaser. Excellent. Oh, that's fantastic. <laughs> well, you know, we can't wait. <laughs> we would love to review any advanced chapters or copies if you, <laughs> yeah. if, if you so, if, you, if you, if you feel I'll so inclined. Yeah. I'll keep that in mind. Over the Please summertime, do. when Please all my do. children are home, I'll be writing and researching and kind of trying to pull it out and get get some structure to it. So we'll see how that goes with four children home from school. <laughs> well, thank you again, Sarah. This has just been a delightful time. Uh, will, you, will you come back in the future when we've got some more things to talk about? Anytime and absolutely. Bless you both. Oh, thank, thank you, you so, so much, much, Sarah. Wow. <laughs> I now completely understand why so many of our listeners have been like, you need to get female voices on. Holy crap. Yeah. For those of you that wanted female voices that, I mean, Adam and I were just talking about this off, off mic, but um, she might be one of my favorite humans on the planet now. I was making a little heart with my hands. Yeah. And like putting it over her little Skype icon and it was, it was a little creepy, but like, I mean, I was just falling in love with everything she had to say and she's just so genuine and wonderful. I make little heart icons over your face too, man. Like right now. (laughs) I may have mimed I love you a couple times. (laughs) I mean, yeah, this is one of the other things we were talking about that I find um, just absolutely impressive about what she does is not only... Now, if you haven't gotten a chance to read her blog, at the very least, um, like we said, it's free. Go mm-hmm. to her website. She's just such a, an amazing, beautiful, just you know, just loving writer. But you know, there there are definitely people out there who are gifted writers. You know, like uh, you know, just gifted with the the written word, but mm-hmm. but you know, don't have the best oration skills. Sure. Shall we say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. We've we yeah we yeah, yeah. We, mm-hmm. we we know some people mm-hmm. like that. But um, she's just gifted on both ends of the Absolutely. spectrum, man. Dual like, threat. Wow. Yeah. Like I I noticed a couple times both of us were like we had we had questions on the on the list, and uh, she just totally just crushed. A question without us even having to get to it. So we're like, no, we'll cross that one off, and then we'll cross this one off. I'm going to say this, and this is a big statement. Yeah, and you know, I'm. She talked about anagram. I'm seven. I'm, you know, extremely enthusiastic and positive, like almost all the time. I don't. What are you talking? I, about? I don't know what to do when there's no hope left. So this is this is <laughs> obviously a, a, a anagram seven type comment, but I'm going to say it. I think we found our new Phyllis Tickle. Yeah, like she's young. She's so wise. She so gets it all from that big, like fifty thousand foot view perspective, like Tickle oh, does. Yeah, and 
I mean, she must be heavily influenced, but like so many times the way she was talking about the entire state of this whole thing. Yeah. From the dark end to the light end or however you want to talk about the differences, you know, from dark to, you know, from losing to finding, you know, the whole narrative seemed to just unfold in front of her and she could just talk about the whole thing Mm. with this level of wisdom and expertise that I was just like, I was not expecting that. No. I've read her stuff. I've listened to her. But when we don't send people notes on like what we're going to want to talk about. No. It's all off the cuff. And she was just all over it. Like I was like, I'm in the hands of an expert right now. Yeah. Yeah. But she's super like the thing that I love about her the most is I I think you mentioned this a couple of times. She's just so gentle and loving with the way that she approaches both sides of the camp, you know. and Absolutely. I think that's a gift and a talent that you, that not everybody possesses, and uh, it comes through. I think this interview was so timely for where we are in this sort of season of our podcast. We're still like you know still freshmen, yeah, and we've gone after a lot of the people that we just you know naturally gravitated towards. And if it wasn't for our listeners, and if it wasn't for us going on this journey, yeah, I probably never would have run into Sarah Bessie's work, her name, her voice. Yeah, And here we are landing this person that was able to speak into what is a very delicate situation, a sensitive situation, this, mm-hmm. this losing and finding and deconstructing and reconstructing and disorienting and disassembling and you know all that kind of stuff with such loving, warm wisdom where it wasn't like, no, 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 don't do that. And it wasn't this like, I've so transcended that now I'm telling you guys what it's going to be like later. It yeah. was this like, I get it, I'm there, but I'm also not there, and here's some other things to expect, and I understand it, and don't be afraid, and it's okay. Yeah. Dude, I just feel so hugged right now. Man, I mean, and she just has a poetic way that she that she puts it, mm. you know, where she talked about leaning into your questions and your doubts until you find that God is here in the wilderness too. Boom. Like, there is no there is no place you can go where God does not already exist. Absolutely. You know? Absolutely. And Ugh. the whole the whole idiom or metaphor or whatever you want to call it about leaning into the pain and like how counterintuitive Ugh. that is, but that you have to do it. And that's the only thing that's gonna break the cycle. And so many people listening right now, you feel like you're in some kind of weird cycle that's sucking the life out of you. And I'm not claiming to know who you are or your situation. And I'm not saying that this is a quick, easy, like, well, hey, just do this and you'll be fine. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is maybe taking Sarah's advice or wisdom or whatever and applying it and realizing that, you know, you're wired to avoid pain. You're wired to avoid shame, guilt, separation. You're wired to, you know, avoid all these things. And one of the things I kind of heard her say is, you know, using that childbirth analogy is, I mean, I'm sure I've seen those natural births, man. Your wife did one, right? Yeah. They get the like cool little jacuzzi, (laughs) Yeah. right? And it's like, okay, maybe that's the jacuzzi is important because you're trying to tell yourself like, yeah, the pain is telling you to tense up. You need to relax and lean into it. Yeah. And it's like, okay, if if I had one takeaway from this episode, my takeaway is, all right, grab a beer or a glass of wine, get your ass into the jacuzzi and lean into that pain. Yeah. Yeah, it did, and do it with a friend. Do it with a yeah. Get in, get into the jacuzzi with a friend. Wear, wear your swimming trunks, or or not, or, or not. <laughs> Dep- depends on your level of weirdness, you know. Grab a beverage <laughs> of the fermented persuasion if you're into that. Yeah, 
and lean into the pain. And she said, you'll find these new vistas open up. That'll be, it'll make leaning into that pain, not just worth it, but like more than worth it. Yeah. Unbelievable. We could go all day, man. Like the other quote that, and, and, and I'm definitely putting this one up on the Instagram, but the, the one quote that she has, and I think it was, uh, one of her, her blog posts, I think about, maybe it was the one about leaving evangelical, uh, evangelicalism. Yeah. 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 Why is that so hard to say? I, because it's a big, big word, <laughs> but, um, she talks about, you know, when she's, she's really, I felt like at this place at the end of that article where she's talking to, you know, people who may be going through similar journeys mm. and Lord knows that there are tons of you listening to this podcast who have reached out to us who are going through that exact same journey. And it seems like your whole life, you mm. know, you're, you know, most of our lives are built upon this structure of faith, right? Sure. So when that starts to crumble, it starts to disrupt all aspects of our lives. So you know, there's a lot of doubt. There's a lot of unknowing involved in, in going through one of those journeys. And she just, she, in a way that's just so beautiful, she's speaking to all of these, these people reading her blog. And mm. she just says, look, you aren't condemned to wander forever. Mm. Remember now, after the wilderness comes deliverance. <sighs> and you're like, oh, it's going to be okay. Jeez. Yeah. Absolutely wonderful. Man. Yeah. Yeah, I got nothing else, man. I hope I hope everybody enjoyed that. Um, this is going to be the summer of power women. Yeah, hashtag power women. <laughs> We've got so many good guests for you guys. We just want to thank you, those who have come along on this journey. We, th- we thank you at the end of almost every episode because there's not a day that goes by that John and I don't look at each other and go, we are so lucky. Yeah, we get to do this. And it, it's important. It's important to you guys. It's important to us. And um, we, I mean... We're so thankful. Mm. So if this means something to you, um, absolutely, um, if you feel compelled to, you don't have to, but if you feel compelled to, the, we do have a donate option on our website. We appreciate every every dollar, every cent that comes in. It helps us to continue to put out the best product that we can put out and, and of course- um, Manage our wives' blood pressure. Yeah, exactly. Because <laughs> um, you know, there are costs associated with, with putting out this podcast um, beyond just time constraints and, yeah. and that sort of thing. And of course, we do have that trip to New York planned um, mm-hmm. this fall. Uh, we've got some great guests uh, coming up that will slowly start to release some of that information, uh, but we're gonna go there and do some live in-person uh, podcasting mm-hmm. and, and maybe even an opportunity for those of you that live in that area to come out and meet up with us at a bar. That'd yeah. be so fun. Have we, a have drink. To, we have to do that. So uh, yeah, we have some great opportunities and, and we do have that Patreon campaign um, is in the works. Um, we just got to put, uh, put together a sweet video. Mm. <laughs> We're very self-conscious of the fact that we have faces made for radio. I'm nervous. So there are going to be lots of makeup, maybe even some uh, full, you know, full, something that might cover the full face. I I like hiding in the cloak of darkness that the podcast provides, man. What if it was just a video that was just pitch darkness and I I was just talking out of the darkness? (laughs) Just all you can see, the spotlight's just on a mic stand. Yeah. And you can see like our knees and maybe our hands on our knees and we're sitting on bar stools and that, that's it. You never get to see us. That would be hilarious. We might have to do that now. Or ventriloquist dummies just <laughs> talking for us. That'd be so great. But, but uh, that's yeah, we, coming out soon. Yeah, we love, we love all of you guys. And we, we understand that, you know, we try to play this whole podcast thing with a, a light uh, hand, some brevity and some fun and some humor. But look, if you're listening to this, we know this is serious stuff. And what you're going through is legit. 
and we're here for you. So reach out via Twitter, email, Instagram, do whatever to connect with us, connect with others. Yeah. Um, our forum has been a little quiet lately. I feel like I feel like the forum is something that um, you know people. There's just not a lot of forum activity because we post this on. You're probably listening to this on iTunes or on a podcast app. You're probably not streaming this off of our website, which you could. But it doesn't make people want to go to the website. But we just always want to remind you there is a forum, Deconstructionists Anonymous, and it's it's a safe place. Mm-hmm. And it's on our website, uh, Deconstructionist, thedeconstructionist.com. Yep. Uh, so go there, click on the link for Deconstructionist Anonymous, and you can uh, post on the forum. And we have been getting a lot of feedback lately for those of you who are really struggling to find a community or a safe person yeah. um, in your geographical area. That would be a great place to reach out and yeah. see if any other people um, are in your area that might want to start You know, even just going out for a coffee or something. Right. Uh, so. We appreciate all the reviews on iTunes. That helps keep us visible. Yeah. Um, if you, if you want to trash us, uh, maybe don't do it on iTunes. You can be as honest as you need to be, but like we would, we would love the opportunity to respond if you absolutely hate what you're hearing right now, but you've still chosen to listen to the entire episode. <laughs> Not really sure why you would do that, but um, yeah, leave us a review on iTunes. That helps keep us visible so other people can find it. Share this podcast um, just like you would have wanted shared if you're here and you're connecting with it. Um, that's just a huge favor you're doing for somebody you don't even know yet. So yeah. uh, I just don't want to underscore that. It's not about, John and I aren't trying to get famous. We, we could really care less, but we right. do want people to hear this and, and feel and find the safety that others have found. So man, I could talk all day. I love doing this. I love you guys. You got anything else, John? No, we got nothing but love for you guys. And, and thank you for everything that you guys are doing to help spread the word. This has all been grassroots. So thank mm. you again. Yep. With that, We are the Deconstructionists. My name is Adam Narlock. And I am John Williamson. Until next time, everyone.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.